The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, church. How are you guys doing today? Excellent, excellent. Hey, a couple of quick quick announcements before we get started here. Uh, Just as a reminder, Holy Joe's is now open again and serving. It's a full-service coffee operation. While we had it shut down for the summer, um, we, we made just plain coffee available. But for those of you who are um, officially Northwest um, citizens, then you can uh, go and get your special double-shot venti white chocolate and hazelnut caramel macchiato. So um, that's back up and on operation. Take advantage of that. It's a wonderful uh, service that we get to offer here through our church. Also, next week is the dreaded fallback um, daylight savings time. This is where, this is the one we all hate, right? Where we wake up and we're like, oh my goodness, it's... uh..." Oh, is this the long one? Okay, I have it backwards in my head. Okay. (laughs) This is the one we love. So I've got good news to announce today. (laughs) Next week, an extra hour of sleep. Okay. Um, So Saturday, October 31st, don't forget to set your alarm clocks. uh, Fall back one hour. Okay. um, Next weekend also is our Huddle Outreach Weekend. It happens to coincide with... Uh, Halloween, and there are some huddle groups that are doing sort of a trunk or treat, or they're getting their groups together to be able to um, uh, facilitate trick-or-treaters as they come through on the Saturday beforehand. So make sure that you're in contact with your huddle leaders uh, to find out what sort of outreach you're going to be doing this next weekend. Again, the, the thought in that and, and the idea behind this is that as a, as a church, we want to all together have an impact on our community, not just in um, you know, going door to door and preaching the gospel kind of a thing, that we are actually salt and light in our community, that somehow we bring the flavor or we illuminate who Jesus is through the way that we love people. And so um, these service weekends are designed for us to engage in our community, and I, I would love um, to see at some point as a whole church, us just sort of permeating and, and infiltrating all the areas of our community through our huddle groups as we continue to see those things take shape over time. Um, also, this weekend is, is our men's retreat, and you'll notice a few more empty seats around here. We have um, our guys away with Pastor Jeff getting some special one-on-one training and, and some time uh, to interact with one another and with, with their pastor. So before we get started here, I just want to pray for those guys because that's a special time away. Amen? So let's pray. Father, um, these men who've taken time out of their schedule to go and spend time away with you, Lord, I pray that right now you would meet them in a spectacular way. Father, that you would cover all of the teaching and instruction, the, the f- times of fellowship, the, the interaction that they have with one another, that it would be useful and instructive, that it would create bonds and friendship 
so that they come back with arms linked, ready to go to war with one another. Father, I pray that you would equip them and use the instruction that is given to further their discipleship and take them deeper in their relationship with you. And that as they come back, Lord, that they would be filled and refreshed by your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So those are our announcements for today. Um, we're going to be in Ephesians 5, sort of continuing a thought that we started last week. Again, for those of you who might be new here, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. And um, it, it's a wonderful thing to, to have you here if you're a guest. And for those of you who know me, you can already tune out because I know how that goes. Sometimes having the same voice over and over um, can be can drown uh, <laughs> the clarity a little bit. We can get, grow dull. Um, so last week, we learned about marriage in principle. Marriage in principle. If you were taking notes, there's a few key things that um, were truths that I really want you to grab a hold of. So we're going to do a, just a little bit of review and kind of sum up what we, what we talked about last week and then continue that thought into this week. Well, the first thing that we talked about is that... Um, is that there is a, a deformation in relations. That when sin entered the picture, relationships got tweaked. If, if, if it's just you, right? If it's just one person, you've got all of your sin to deal with. But when, when you get married, now you've got twice the amount of sin, right? Now you've got two sinners that are stuck together in this relationship and in the same household, occupying the same space. And man, there can be challenges that come as a result of that. What has gone wrong? How did things get so tweaked? Well, the Bible tells us that sin has changed the nature of relationships. That what God designed for marriage and in that relationship has been tweaked by sin. It's been changed. Now all of a sudden, instead of longing to serve one another and to see the good in one another, we, we begin to pick each other apart and we begin to be self-serving. We turn inward in our desire rather than outward in our desire. And, and things just get squirrely in marriage, don't they? And so the question is, well, what's the solution? And there, there seems to be, our second point, some solution confusion. That is that some say, look back, look back. Find what's wrong in your history. If you can find out what's wrong with the way that you think and how you act, if you look back to what, what made you the way that you are, that somehow you can maybe unlock things moving forward. But as we talked about last week, when the, doesn't really necessarily work out. I mean, how far back do we go? All the way back to Adam and Eve? I'm this way because my dad was this way and he was that way because his dad was that way. On and on and on it goes. No, we can't do that. That doesn't help us. Though there are aspects that we can learn about uh, from looking at our past, it won't fix what is wrong. We only observe what is wrong. Others say, look in. Don't look back, look in. Find out what sort of internal compulsions are, are, are directing your life and making you fire the way that you do. 
And if you just look in, somehow you'll be able to unlock the mystery of, of why you are the way that you are. But there's several problems with that. One is that uh, when I look inward, I look inward through a, through a carnival mirror, right? Things are distorted by my own sinfulness. That's why I can condemn the guy in traffic for cutting me off and then drive two blocks and cut someone else off. And I feel justified in that. I'm looking at my own heart through a, a, a lens that has been cracked, that has been broken. Not only that, but I, I don't know how to change my internal compulsions. How many of you have ever started and quit an exercises routine? Or a diet? You hear about the latest thing, whether that's be, you know, it be running or CrossFit or, you know, paleo diet or, or you know, whatever it is, right? You go, okay, yeah, this is it. This is the thing that's going to fix me until you realize how much suffering is involved. <laughs> You're like, actually, I don't want to do this. I like myself thicker. <laughs> right? We, we can't change the internal compulsion. We don't know how to. We can see what is wrong oftentimes, but the power to make changes seems to fade away from us. And so what does God say? What, what is his solution? His solution is not so much look back or look in, but God says look up. Look up. Look to Christ. Imitate him. Listen, whenever we talk about marriage, we're talking about two fallen, sinful people committing to, to love each other through thick and thin, hell or high water, good or bad, sickness, health, richer, poor, better, worse, until death separates us. That's what we're talking about. And if you want to know how to do that, man, looking around at the relationships around us is not going to help us a whole lot. The examples we have are wide and varying. And sometimes it doesn't seem like there's any real rhyme or reason why one couple is successful and the other couple falls apart. We try to analyze from the perspective of personality profiles and whether or not, you know, I'm an orange and you're a, a sanguine or whatever it is, right? We, 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 all those internet tests that are around. Not that they're, they're, those are bad things. Those are things that help us to understand how we work, okay? But they don't, they assess what's wrong. They don't teach us how to love. Where do we look? Well, if there's any one relationship that teaches us how to love someone who is a sinner, don't you think that's Christ? And that is why we look to Jesus. This is, this is what we're doing here. When we talk about you know, marriage being a picture of Christ and the church, that's what we're talking about. Marriage, 
or married people, excuse me, married people learn how to love by looking at Jesus and the way that he has loved the church. This is an idea that's reinforced throughout Scripture. To sum up this important truth, I, I, I do think it's important, though, to draw a distinction. When we talk about marriage being a reflection of Christ in the church, it's easy to fall into a sort of self-deprecating um, condemnation. That is, we look at Christ and the relationship that he has with the church, and we begin to then browbeat ourselves or beat ourselves up for not having a marriage that looks like that. I, I can tell you from my own experience that there's been many times throughout the years where I look at the example of Christ in the church and I measure myself by that and I go, I am failing miserably. What do I do with that? Well, what is being talked about here in Ephesians is not so much saying your marriage is only right when it perfectly reflects what Jesus and the church look like. No, what Paul seems to be saying here is something different. He is saying, we learn what marriage is to look like by observing the best example that we have of love. Do you see the difference? One is, I can only find rest in my marriage when all of the elements are perfected. The other is, I see in Christ a perfected love. And that is what I'm working towards. Big difference, don't you think? And I think a lot of us, for those of, who have been involved in marriage and you've had difficulty, we live under some, some sort of condemnation of, of, of like, um, I'm always failing, it's never right, I can never rest in the marriage because not all of the elements are perfected and it doesn't look exactly like Christ in the church. And so we've got big problems. And I would say, yes, welcome to the club. There's, a, there's actually a support group for that. I don't know if you guys knew. We meet every morning at 10 o'clock. We gather together. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ. Listen, brokenness in marriage is normal. Do you know that? And I want you to hear this from a pastor's heart. A lot of times people come in and they're like, we are so screwed up. I'm like, yeah, totally. Welcome to the club. Let's enter into this together, okay? Let's talk about this together. Let's talk about our brokenness and how Christ resolves our brokenness. Let's discover together what it means to pursue a life that looks like Jesus. Let's talk about this together. What Paul seems to be saying here is we learn what marriage is to look like by observing the best example that we have of love. When our marriage doesn't look like Christ in the church, it's time to examine, to repent, and to make changes. We're not to live under the weight of perfectionism. We're to see Christ, our hope and our example, and pursue his best for us. I mean, is anything different in our relationship with the Lord as we relate to God? I mean, I could feel condemned every day of my life, couldn't I? I I'm always failing in something. 
There is always something for me to repent of. There's some measure of brokenness in my life that is continually being worked through by Jesus. And I could live in a constant state of, oh my goodness, I'm such a wreck, I'm such a loser, I can't believe this. But is that God's will? Is that what he purchased for me on the cross? Did he save me so that I could live condemned? No. He gave me grace so that I might leave condemnation behind and pursue a right relationship with him. And that's what we are doing in marriage. It's, it's sort of a lifestyle of repentance together. Does that make sense? Are you guys tracking with me? Okay, good. So then, knowing that Christ will be our example, let, let's look today at marriage in practice. Or to put it another way, if Christ is our example, how practically does that impact marriage and direct us as Christians in marriage? So we're going to ask some simple questions of the text and see what happens when we begin to think about marriage as being modeled after the relationship of Christ and the church. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We're going to pause right there. We're going to talk about wives first. To sum this up, here's what he says. Wives, do you want to know how to be a good wife? Do you want to understand what your responsibility, what, what, what are the bumpers on the bowling alley of life? Do you want to understand that? Here, here. Let, let me give you one big tip. Relate to your husband the way that the church relates to Christ. That's your goal. Relate to your husband the way that the church relates to Christ. So uh, this kind of begs the question, well, how does the church relate to Christ? How does the church relate to Christ? You ever thought about that? What does God want for us? Why do we gather on Sunday mornings? What's the point of our gatherings? Is it more nuggets of knowledge, more truth to be tucked away, more songs to be sung? What, what is supposed to be happening here among God's people when we're gathered together? Well, I think first, what God is after is a devoted heart. A devoted heart. That is, we're to give ourselves to Him. Devoted to Him and to Him alone. Not to anything else. Not to any other. No idols. And no substitutes. 
And we think about an idol, okay, in the, the Old Testament or even presently in the current um, setting in which we live. What, what, what's really going on with an idol? An idol is a carved image or a, a representation of a deity, okay? But it, it's only that, wow, they are excited in there, aren't they? It, it, it's only a representation, though. It, it's not the deity itself. And, and in some ways, it's even a preferred image. It's an ideal rather than a reality. Now, as I think about this, as it relates to Christ and uh, my relationship with him, or the church's relationship with him, I gotta be honest, sometimes I would rather know the Christ that's like I prefer than Christ as he is. In other words, I, I, I want Christ in some way to be conformed to my ideals rather than the reality. Let me give you a couple of examples. When I think about um, when I think about people who have never heard the gospel I want him to give me a reason why they might be condemned. I, I, I struggle with the reality of, of like, okay, so people who have never heard the gospel, they've never heard Jesus, they don't, they don't um, ever have the influence of Christianity, what happens to those people? And God is oddly silent about that, isn't he? He never really gives us a clear-cut answer like, this is what happens to those people. We don't get that. We get only go preach. Let them hear. That's what we get. You know what I would prefer? I would prefer Jesus to be really clear. Give me all the points. Tell me how this works out. That's what I prefer. I, I have in Jesus a real problem sometimes with the ways in which he uses suffering. How that he can allow circumstances in the lives of his people that are incredibly hard for them to endure. Sometimes overwhelmingly so. I go, God, you have power to change that. With a word, you can make a miracle happen and shift the dynamics. Why do you allow that? But he doesn't tell me. So there's lots of things, guys, in life that I would prefer God was one way, but in fact, he is who he is. He's the I am that I am. And I'm supposed to be devoted to, he, to him as he is. Not what I would prefer. Now, as this translates into marriage, one of the toughest things for us to do in marriage is to accept one another for who we really are. Isn't that tough? For those of you who have been married for a while, you've gotten to know a few things about one another. Now, before, in the courtship process, there, you could sort of self-edit a little bit, right? If you were gassy, 
You waited. But when you live together, right? If you had poor table manners, you were on your best behavior. If you were grumpy first thing in the morning, you made sure that everything was okay by the time you got around that person. But when you live together, all that stuff gets exposed. It all comes to the surface. And sometimes what happens is people get locked in on the version of that other person that they prefer rather than the reality. They establish in their hearts and in their minds an idol of sorts. They say, I'm I'm waiting for that time in which you are going to be perfected. I have a vision for your future. And when your character is finally tweaked to the way that I want it, I'll finally be able to let go of this and rest and we'll be happy together. But life doesn't work out like that. Part of the process of loving someone is loving them as they are. Being devoted to them as they are. No idols. No substitutes. You don't have another image in the back of your mind that you're hoping they'll turn into. You say, as you are, brokenness and all, warts and all, I'm devoted to you. I love you. No substitutes. This means that there shouldn't be a competing love, whether real or imagined. No idols and no substitutes, complete devotion to your husband. Wives, if you want to know how to love your husband, love him like the church loves Christ. Be devoted to him, to who he is, to how he's put together. Don't try and mold him or shape him. Love who God has made him to be. Second of all, Wives, love your husband like the church loved Christ with a pursuing heart. You know, here's the thing. In, in talking about the Lord, and this is one of the, um, the difficulties of being a pastor, is that sometimes I am, uh, I, there's so much of my life that's caught up in churchy activities with churchy people. And we do a lot of churchiness. Okay, but what's weird about that is that I can actually preach sermons, disciple people, have Bible studies, prepare, counsel, and never have actually spent any time with Jesus myself. That can totally happen and has happened in my life. You see, as a Christian, I can't be content with memories of Christ. I need to be longing for his presence, a present experience of Christ. I'm not satisfied with yesterday's fellowship, with the old bread, with the manna that fades away. I want bread for today. 
I want fellowship with him today. I want current connection. It's not enough for me to talk about him. I need to talk to him and give my heart to him. Listen, part of loving your husband like the church loves Christ is doing that in your home. Having a pursuing heart. Not being content with memories of connection with one another. But as a wife, you're to be pursuing connection with your husband. You're to long for his presence and his friendship. To desire a current connection with him. Thirdly, one of the ways that the church loves Christ is with an open heart. With an open heart. That is, we give him access to all of us. There are no bars, there are no doors, there are no secret closets where we tuck stuff away and say, no, nothing to see here. We give him access to all of our hearts, to all of our lives. There is nothing hidden. The goal in marriage is to progress over time where more and more of yourself is given to the other person, where the walls come down and true intimacy can take place, where the two are made one and there is no need to have a barrier, where we can be naked and not ashamed, fully known and fully loved and accepted. So one of the ways that the church loves Christ is not only with a pursuing heart, but with an open heart. Fourthly, the church loves Christ with an honest heart. That is, we refuse to be fake with Jesus. He wants the real us, not the sanitized us. This doesn't mean that we're controlled by our passions. We're just like, I just want to be real, and so I'm going to be a total jerk. No, that's not what that means. Let me tell you how this works out. The other day, I, I came in and, um, to the office. I, I drove in on a, a Friday, and I'd just been at Starbucks, and I was processing some events from this last week, and I found myself um, just struggling, right? I'm struggling. So I pull into the parking lot, and I'm just like, God... I am, I'm sorry. I know what I'm supposed to feel and I know what I'm supposed to think. But right now, I don't feel that and I don't think that. And I'm just, honestly, God, I'm just really glad that you love me even when I'm messed up. So here's the real me. I'm kind of pissed off. I'm kind of irritated about this. This is what I really have to offer to you. And I, I don't want to just fake it and say, oh God, thank you for your wonderful goodness. I want to be honest about where my heart really is with you. <laughs> I, always, I always puzzled over this in, in the Psalms. Because in some of the Psalms, you get, you're like, that's in the Bible? Right? David's like, okay, um, my enemies. What do I want you to do to my enemies? Smash their infants against the rocks and make their wives cry because they don't come home. Now, was God like, 
that was beautiful. <laughs> Is that the lesson there? Is that how we apply that scripture? Oh, yeah. I mean, in the New Testament, he tells us, love our enemies, right? There's a commandment, there's a directive. But here in the Old Testament, there's a recording of David's worship. And you know what he offered to God? What was really in his heart. What was really there. Warts and all. It wasn't the perfection that God wanted. It was the honesty that God wanted. And then he writes it down in his word for us to look at. And we scratch our heads going, does God want us to hate people? It's like, no. I want you to be honest about where your heart is. So we, the church, we, the church, love Jesus with a pursuing heart, with an open heart, with an honest heart. We refuse to be fake. We live with authenticity. We offer to God who we really are. And in marriage, we do the same thing. We offer to one another who we are, not the sanitized version, not the edited version. We give each other who we really are. We have an honest heart. Fifth, we have an honoring heart. The church loves Christ with an honoring heart. The church sees Jesus as worthy of honor. We speak highly of Jesus. We act nobly towards and for Jesus. We see the sacrifices and care of Jesus as having value and acknowledge in our hearts and in our lives his ultimate worthiness. And wives, I'll tell you something. If you want to stoke the fire of your husband's heart, talk about what an honorable man he is. Discuss with your friends the nobilities of your, of your husband. Exalt the good things that God has done in him. Don't lie, don't be dishonest, but genuinely pursue those things that you go, oh, I love this about my husband. And you will see him rise up to that in ways that you can't even imagine. I mean, think about this. I mean, the military is probably the perfect example. Dr. Egerich, in his uh, well-known book, Love and Respect, in the video series, he talks about the, the reality of, of the military, right? What motivates people to go and jump on a grenade for their buddies? Without thinking about it. I mean, it's like a reflex. What motivates them to do that? How, how, do, they, how do they come to this place where like, my, it's a worthwhile endeavor for me to, to jump on a grenade and offer my life for these people around me? What makes that sacrifice worthy? The only thing that they have, the only reward that they are given is honor. That's it. The family gets a flag and the honor of knowing that their son or daughter was willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice for those around them. If you want to motivate a man, motivate him through honor. So we, the church, 
love Christ with an honoring heart. Number six, with a surrendering heart. A surrendering heart. His will is our desire, not our obligation. Let me say that again. The will of Christ is our desire, not our obligation. This is what God was winning by abolishing the old covenant. Obedience from love and relationship, not from obligation and law. And, and, and as the church interacts with Christ, one of the things that we're all sort of having to rework and, 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 and continually come back to again and again in our lives is this reality that I follow Jesus, I live for Jesus, I, I long for Jesus' will, not because I have to, but because I love him. Because he has loved me perfectly. And I want his will in my life out of desire, not out of duty. Does that make sense? So again, as this translates into marriage, when we talk about the area of submission, we're not talking about obligation. We're talking about relational love. Where a wife looks at her husband and says, God has laid upon you the responsibility of our family. And I don't take that lightly and neither does he. So first of all, may God have mercy on your soul. Second of all, because I love God and you love God and I love you, when it comes down to making ultimate decisions and there is something that we have to work through, I defer to you knowing that you're the one who's going to be held accountable. And because I love you, I want to support you in that. I want to give as helpful of advice as I possibly can to that end. If I think that you're one day going to stand before the Lord and give an account for the decision that you make, because I love you, I want you to be well informed in that decision. But ultimately, I support you in the decision that you make because I recognize that you're the one who will bear the responsibility for our home. A surrendered heart. The church loves Christ with an adoring heart. It's not just that we're obligated to see the excellencies of Christ. It is our delight to see his excellencies. We treasure his actions towards us. We enjoy his presence. We love to talk with him. This is not drudgery. This is not duty. It is our delight. I'll let you into a little window in my life. Um, when I first came on at Heritage, I... Uh, I had, a, I had like an iPod touch. This is back when iPhones were kind of fairly new, right? It was like um, they, they were only around for a couple of years. And so as a part of coming on at Heritage, I get an iPhone, right? And so I'm familiar with Apple products and whatnot, but Siri was brand new. And I wasn't super familiar with Siri. And so my, my wife, um, she, she thought it would be really funny to play a little joke 
on me. And you know, if you press and hold the Siri button, you can give yourself a name that Siri will refer to you by. Right? So unbeknownst to me, she says, Siri, from now on, call me Awesome Sexy Beast. <laughs> right? I have no clue. No clue that this has happened or that this occurred or that this is even a real thing that can take place in my phone. So months go by and I'm brand new at the church and I'm meeting all kinds of new people. And in the process, I'm like, oh, there's this share my contact feature, right? Where I can just buzz over like my email address and anybody else that has an iPhone, they get all of my info all at once. I'm like, hey, yeah, I'll just share my contact. I'm sharing it everywhere, right? I'm new to the valley, so I'm meeting other pastors in the valley, and I'm sharing my contact with other pastors in the valley. One day I go to the gym, and as I'm at the gym, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I, it was an extremely hard workout. I think I threw up. I don't remember. Um, and I come out, and I'm just like, I'm completely wiped, and I get in my car, and I go to get directions to an appointment that's coming up. So I hit the Siri button, and I make my request, and she says, okay, awesome sexy beast. I'm like, I think Siri is coming on to me. <laughs> so naturally, I call my wife, right? And I'm like, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> right? So I, I, I tell her, I'm like, I was just at the gym, and I don't know, it's like an Apple feature? <laughs> like, like they're clocking where you're at for a long time, and somehow they see you've been working out super hard, and they're trying to encourage health, right? And my wife is just, she's dying, she's cracking up. And then she tells me what happened, I'm like, oh, okay, that's funny, didn't know, though, that it saves Awesome Sexy Beast as a part of my contact feature. <laughs> so I dismiss it and move on. I, another month or so goes by. And I'm at a basketball game, and there's another local pastor sitting down below, and I say, hey, let me share my contact with you, and I share it with him. And he gets his, it, he opens it up, and he's sitting down about three rows in the bleachers from me, and he finally he just turns around, and he looks at me, and he goes, Awesome, sexy beast? I'm just like, oh my. Oh my word. But I'll tell you something. I'm kind of a realist. I know I'm not an awesome, sexy beast. But I love that my wife thinks that about me. It's good for my soul. To be adored, to be loved, to be treasured, it stokes the fire of my heart. See, this is what we do when we gather here and we begin to sing, right? So we lift up the name of Jesus and we talk about all of his attributes and how wonderful he is. We acknowledge his goodness. We're adoring Christ. 
Wives, if you want to know how to love your husband, love him like the church loves Christ. Adore him. Love him with an adoring heart. Lastly, wives, love him with a listening heart. When we gather together in moments like this, the church comes together, one of the primary things that we do together is open up his words. Why? Because he's the savior. Because he's the Lord of all. He's the king above all kings. He's the one who has pursued us and loved us through all of our difficulties and all the drama that we bring to his kingdom, right? And so when he says something to us, it means something to us. It has weight. It has value. His words are meaningful. I I know that there are some men that are not great communicators, But I guarantee you they're trying. Give weight to their words. You know, I'm married probably, I've been married for 15 years, but it wasn't really until about year 10 or 11 that I got good at all at expressing what I was really feeling. Um, Along the way, my wife actually was instrumental in helping train me for that. She had to like help me learn how to express my feelings because otherwise I would just be like, you know, grouchy and she's like, what is really going on here? I'm like, well, this happened and I'm kind of carrying this anxiety and okay, I had to, that had to be drawn out of me, right? In a nurturing environment. She's taught me how to talk about what's happening in my heart. She's, she's taught, I've learned from her how to be more expressive And she's taught me that, not through just instruction, but through being an excellent listener. Where she has listened to me and continued to ask questions and probe deeper and want to know what's really going on below the surface. She wants to know me. And my words mean something to her. Who I am on the inside means something to her. And when I give expression to that, that bears weight with her. Wives, if you you want to know how to love your husband, love him like the church loves Christ. Give weight and value to his words. Love him with a listening heart. With a listening heart. Now, real quickly, before we transition into husbands, because this is important, I think it's important to jot down a couple of notes on submission and headship and what that doesn't mean, okay? Here in this passage, it's one of the highly debated passages, especially in a modern society, when the idea of wives submitting to their own husbands as to the Lord comes up, immediately there's lots of tension that is experienced as a result of that. One, because of the abuses that we've seen happen and the worry about what could take place if a wife gives herself to that completely. So let's define this a little bit. We'll put some, um, some wheels on that so that it, it rolls for us. Okay, 
First of all, submission doesn't mean that you agree. It means that you trust. Okay? Submission doesn't mean that you agree. It means that you trust. If you agree, you're not submitting. <laughs> right? You're getting what you want. You're getting what you desire. Submission means at some level you are willing to step back and say, I trust Jesus and I trust my husband. Now that's not an easy one to swallow because submitting to Jesus is easy. He's perfect. Submitting to our husbands, hard because we see his imperfections. Am I right? All the women are like, amen. <laughs> I refuse to answer that because I'm submitting to my husband. What do you think of that? <laughs> Sometimes, guys, I'm not sure I like what Jesus is doing. But you know what? I trust his heart. Sometimes you may not like the decisions that your husband is making for your family. Sometimes you may not think that it's the wisest thing. The one thing that you want to be able to trust is his heart towards you. And Jesus' heart towards him, that if he is making a wrong choice, that Jesus has the power to redirect him or to redeem his bad choices. The issue of submission is an issue of trust. Second of all, submission doesn't mean you're voiceless. He needs your counsel. Now, a lot of times people think submission means I just shut up and do whatever he wants. No, that is not what it means. Matter of fact, you would be an absolute fool to just shut up and do everything your husband tells you. Submission means, honey, because you're the one who is held accountable for this, I'm going to give you the best information that I can, the best feedback, what I think is the wisest course of action. We're going to pray together. I want you to, to follow the Lord in this, and I'm going to encourage you in that. I submit, but I do so with giving you counsel. Again, as I relate this to the Lord, I want God's will, but do you know what he encourages me to do? To pray for what I want. Ultimately, he's in charge. I'm submitting to him. I surrender to him. But what am I instructed to do? To tell him what my desires are through prayer. It's the same thing in a marriage. We still communicate. He is not a, a, a dictator, right? He's a loving shepherd taking into account all the things that matter for his family and all the concerns and cares of his wife and then weighing them out before the Lord and then saying, God, I think this is the decision that honors you most and I want to follow you in that. Submission doesn't mean you're voiceless. He needs your counsel. And submission doesn't make you a doormat. It lays the responsibility on your husband. In life, I refuse to take Christ's throne. I know that that seat has a responsibility that I am not equipped 
to handle or called to handle. I refuse to sit on his throne and usurp his authority. And in marriage, the idea of surrender and submission is that he has his role and responsibility before the Lord that is his to own, and God will deal with him in that. I have my area of responsibility, and God will deal with me on that. I refuse to take his job. Now, I, I can hear already in the back of my mind the countless voices throughout my past saying, but what if he won't lead? What do I do if he won't lead? What if his heart isn't towards the Lord? I would say this. Most bosses didn't start out as bosses. They learned through being empowered over time. Right? They learned how to lead through being given responsibility and, and having that responsibility reinforced. Men learn how to lead better when you put them in the position to lead. If you constantly take that opportunity away, how will he learn? Submission doesn't make you a doormat. It lays the responsibility on your husband. And fourth, submission doesn't override the authority of Christ. You submit to him first. In other words, this kind of submission has limits. If a husband in any way, shape, or form is asking his wife to do things that contradict the authority of Jesus in her life, she has a first obligation first. She's not required to submit to a husband who is asking her to do things that are dishonoring or sinful. If a husband asks you to do things that contradict the nature and character of God, you are under a higher court of authority. And that's King Jesus himself. So, moving on. Wives, do you want to know how to be a good wife? Relate to your husband like the church relates to Christ. Husbands, do you want to know how to be a good husband? How many of you guys say, I didn't get the instruction manual when I started out in marriage, and I'm learning as I go? All husbands are like, oh. You want to know how to love your wife? Let's read what the passage says here. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. First thing right here. Husbands, love your wives sacrificially. Sacrificially. Here's what that means. It affects really four areas. It affects, first of all, priority. Second of all, presence. Third of all, protection. And finally, provision. We love sacrificially. First in the area of priority. When a husband loves rightly, he considers the needs and the health of his family first. He thinks of himself last. It means life is structured around the most important things first. That all of your priorities are in order, and not just in heart, but in practice. Okay, so... Again, I'll, I'll display my own failings here so that you guys can kind of 
see what I'm, what I'm trying to communicate here. Early on in marriage, we were living in Cave Junction and, and very, very poor, right? And so I, I worked a ton. And not only did I work, but then we're church planting on top of that. And so I had uh, four evening Bible studies a week because I thought that I need to pro- provide all these services in order to get a church off the ground, right? And I would work. I lived in Cave Junction, but I commuted all the way over here to Medford and Talent and Ashland doing landscape construction um, for a, a, a construction outfit. And uh, so in the middle of that, I would leave at like four o'clock in the morning. I'd get home at about uh, a quarter to seven. And then my Bible study started at seven. And I studied at my break times and, um, and then late into the night sometimes. And then, um, you know, anywhere in between that I could squeeze time. So then I would come home, I would have just enough time to get out of my dirty, uh, you know, landscaping jeans that are covered in mud and my boots just caked with, with mud and whatever, and then I'd change it into some decent clothes and head right back out the door. My wife would toss me a sandwich or something, and, and then I'd go out and do Bible studies. Finally, my wife comes to me and she's like, I am, I'm dying. I'm, I'm so lonely. I, I can't live like this. I'm like what do you want from me? I'm working my butt off. I'm trying to make this happen. I'm trying to provide for us. I'm, you know, I'm frustrated trying to figure this whole thing out. And she goes, I just feel like I'm not a priority. I'm like, how can you say that? How can you say that you're not a priority? Because I, I'm working my tail off so that I can provide for our families and uh, there's security for you and and I'm trying to get this thing going and then when things shift and maybe I can just pastor full time and not be bivocational and you know I I had this intense struggle and she goes Jeremy I know that I'm a priority in your heart but I don't feel like I'm a priority in life Let me tell you, that was an eye-opening moment for me. Because in my mind, I'm like, okay, relationship with God is first. After that comes my marriage, okay? I'm tracking marriage, and then comes what I do. Yeah, I got my priorities straight. In my heart and in my mind, those are my priorities. But at some point, that has to translate out into practice to what I'm doing which meant I needed to sacrifice some things. There were some things that needed to change practically to reorganize the priorities in my life to reflect my values so that the practice lined up with what my heart intended to live. That makes sense? So husbands, we are going to be called upon by God to love sacrificially. That means at times we have to lay things down in order to meet the needs of our family. Hobbies. Friendships. Sometimes family relationships. Sometimes it's really difficult situations where we go, okay, I I have... I've got to take the hit on this one. I have to. I, my family needs this. My wife needs this. I need to lay this down. We're to love our wives sacrificially in priority. Second of all, in presence. When a husband loves rightly, it looks like Jesus being willing to totally inconvenience himself in every way for the sake 
and salvation of the church. He makes himself available to us, even when it's not comfortable. I have to imagine for a moment here what it must have been like to be Jesus before the incarnation. I'm betting heaven is fairly cushy. Every day, heaven and earth adore you. Angels bow down before you. You wake up to worship, right? There's no pain, no suffering, there's no nothing. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of that, Jesus says, okay, I can have this comfortable existence forever, and this can stretch on into eternity, or I can become a human, can be born or birthed, suffer all the things that humans suffer, endure a grueling death, and bear scars for all of eternity. He says, I, I, I choose option B. That's what I want. I want the suffering. I want the hardship. I want the difficulty because I want them to know that I am present. That I am the God who is with them. He makes himself, first of all, physically available. The incarnation was God coming down. The gift of the Holy Spirit right now, the Holy Spirit that is now living in us and working through us, is God present in our lives. Present in us. He makes himself physically available. He makes himself emotionally available. Available. Do you remember? Remember Jesus? He's standing at the tomb of Lazarus. The shortest verse in the Bible. We all know it. Jesus what? Wept. Right? Jesus wept. Wait a minute. Think about this. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why is he crying? Because he's present emotionally with the people around him in that moment. He feels their pain. Actually, did you know that the word compassion is... is, is, The word passion, first of all, it comes from the idea of the cross, the suffering of Jesus on the cross. That was called his passion, right? Passion week, we all kind of get that, understand that? The word passion means to suffer. The prefix, C-O-M, com, is with. So if you take the whole word, it means with suffering, or to suffer with, okay? Jesus has compassion because he's willing to suffer with us. To enter into our pain, to see the things that are going on in our lives, and to feel what we feel. It's our pain in his heart. And it's not any different right now. I mean, it was the same in that day at the tomb of Lazarus. It was the same when he wept on the hillside overlooking Jerusalem. He says, I I would have gathered you, O Jerusalem. I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers its chicks. But you would not, and now your destruction is coming, right? But, But he knows the destruction of Jerusalem is the establishing of the kingdom of God. He knows that this is ultimately going to open the gospel to the whole world, right? His rejection 
his crucifixion, and yet he weeps. Why? Because he's present in the moment. He's present in the moment. He knows how he's going to use it for good, and yet he weeps in the moment because it's our suffering in his heart. Husbands are to love sacrificially, not only in priority, but also in presence. They are physically available. They are emotionally available. They are willing to feel what their wives feel and understand where they're at and hear their hearts. Thirdly, Jesus is spiritually available. Spiritually available. Again, in his life, what did he do? He ministered to those that were hurting. He laid hands on the sick. He prayed for his disciples. He encouraged. He taught. He was present spiritually for his people. And has it changed? Even right now, the Lord Jesus Christ sits upon a throne in eternity, and he is present right now with his people. And out in this audience right here, there are multiplied ways in which the King Jesus is applying his word into the hearts of his people because he is present in your situation. He's with you in the middle of that. He is physically emotionally and spiritually available to his people. He is present with them. Thirdly, husbands love sacrificially through protection. Christ was willing to endure all things and take the hits for his bride. He saw it as his obligation to make her feel safe. One of the hardest things that I've had to overcome in in marriage is the times that my wife has said, you make me feel not safe. When she's trying to share something with me and I'm arguing with her and she's like, I'm sharing my heart and I'm still trying to fix a problem. She's like, I I don't feel like it's safe for me to share my heart with you because you won't address what's really going on. You only want to just fix it and move on. You just don't want there to be any difficulty. Christ was willing, he was willing to endure all things for the sake of his bride. He saw it as his obligation to make her safe. This means in the middle of the night when the window breaks and you hear somebody in the living room, you don't wake up and shake your wife and go, get her or get him. It means if you're 125 pounds, a stick man, A vegan guy who lives on soy protein. Doesn't matter. You're the first one in the living room. Right? Because you know it's your obligation. You take responsibility for the safety of your family and of your home. Protection. In the same way that Christ took responsibility for his bride. Fourth, provision. Christ gave and gives all that he has for the church. He gave and gives all that he has for the church. He is presently covering our needs. In the past, he covered our debts. In the future, he has secured our security. He covered our past debt, he covers our present need, and he covers our future security. He is an excellent provider. 
The Bible goes on to say in another place, if a man doesn't provide for the needs of his household, he is worse than an unbeliever. Part of the obligation of being a man, growing into maturity and taking on a family, is the willingness to say, their care is my responsibility. It's my job to make sure that that happens. And I take that responsibility willingly. Priority, presence, protection, provision, husband's love sacrificially. Point number two, husband's love sanctifyingly. Sanctifyingly. Seeking to unfold their wives rather than mold them. Again, not in love with a future version of their wife. Hey, can I just say something real quick? I just have a small little issue to take care of. Husband, if you're making fun of your wife's weight, shame on you. Shame on you. If you have in your mind the ideal wife whose body figure looks like this, you've got an idol in your life. Repent. Wake up. Love the wife God has given you, not the one that you wanted. Love God's provision for you, not the version you have in your head of what you think you deserve. Because you know what you deserve? Hell. God has been gracious in providing a wife for you. Love her like Christ loves the church. We're seeking as husbands to unfold our wives, to see the beauty that God has already placed in her, to admire the profound beauty of who God has made her to be, made her to be, not to make her what we long for her to be. He would rather have the real and broken us than the sanitized and fake us. He wants the real deal, not the future version. He wants us as we are. Seeking to build up rather than tear down. Part of sanctification is is this continuous process of change where God loves us how we are, right? And continues to see to help us to see what he's already invested in us and to peel away the layers of sinfulness. But also, he's seeking to input and to build up and encourage those things that, that are a part of the nature that he's already given us. He seeks to build us up rather than tear us down. And a part of our sanctifying is that he gives us instruction. He gives us his word. And, and, and this is not so that we have rules to live by, but it's rather so that we have encouragement along the way. God seeks to build us up rather than tear us down. And we remind our families of God's word because we want God's best, not because it's a rule book in the same way that Christ did not give, um, the, give the, his word to the world to condemn the world, but rather that through the, the word of God, 
and through Christ Jesus, the world might be saved. Everybody knows John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but should have eternal life. But John 3, 17, the very next verse, goes on to say, for he did not come to condemn the world, but rather that the world might be saved through him. Husbands love sanctifyingly. When the passage goes on to read here, it says in verse 26, uh, we'll, we'll back up to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blam- blemish. He wants her wholeness. That's what he wants. He wants the church's wholeness. When we're talking about sanctifying our wives, we're wanting the wholeness of our wives. We talk to them about the word of God and we fellowship with them regarding the word of God because we want their wholeness in every way. We want them to be spiritually nurtured, physically taken care of, emotionally protected. We seek to build them up rather than tear them down. We long for their completeness in eternity and in the Lord. Third point here, husbands love selfishly. Everybody was tracking until they got to that one. Is that a typo? I sent my notes ahead of time to to Walter and I got a text back. Did you mean to say selflessly? And the funny thing is, is God doesn't do that. He actually, he actually encourages selfishness here. Notice what he says. He says, verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Husbands love selfishly. He says, hey, Jesus did that. He loved the church, sanctified the church, saved the church, redeemed the church. Why? That he might enjoy the church. He might enjoy. Listen, one of the biggest problems for us as husbands is that we set our sights way too low. The greatest joy we will ever know as husbands is watching our wives blossom and flourish. It's the greatest joy we'll ever know. Too often we are satisfied to only have the meager pleasures of getting what we want. We have not discovered the greater joy of seeing our family thriving and vibrant and alive, loving as Christ our wives is not drudgery, it's wonderful. It's the most satisfying thing that we will ever do. It is health to our souls when we love our wives well. When we love them well, it's not just good for them, it's good for us. He says, love your wife like you love yourself. Think about that. How many of you guys woke up this morning, 
stretch a little bit, walk into the bathroom, you see yourself there in the mirror, you're like, oh, this is fabulous. You put your hand down on the counter, you take your toothbrush, you carve it really quick into a prison shank, stab yourself through the hand. Anybody do that? Why? Because you love yourself more than that, right? Hopefully. Okay, listen. When you hurt your wife, who do you hurt? Yourself. When you dishonor your wife, who do you dishonor? Yourself. When you do damage and destruction, you will reap the benefits of that for years and years to come. We often reap what we sow. An unloved wife doesn't trust easily and won't follow willingly. She begins to build walls rather than be vulnerable. And when she hurts... Fellas, we hurt. See, this is, this is a part of the, the big idea of marriage. We can't undo the oneness and the togetherness that is there. The two have become one. I know that I'm keeping you long, and we're uh, going to wrap this up with one final comment. The overall goal here is oneness. When Paul closes the issue of marriage with a quote from Genesis, he says, the biggest point to all of this is oneness. Notice what he says here at the very end of this passage. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this, is a, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He closes with this quote from Genesis and he says this, the big point of all this is the two becoming one. And I'm telling you that this is the magical part where we begin to understand the mystery of Christ and the church. Togetherness, oneness, not sameness. Christ is other than us. He's different than us. We're different from one another in marriage. But there is oneness, closeness, vulnerability, togetherness. Through marriage, we learn about God's nature and character in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. A vow to love like this can't be taken lightly. It's not to be disposed of flippantly. A vow to love like this is a decision to love like Christ and to plumb the depths of God's heart. It's to know Him experientially as we love one another. Like our relationship with Christ, the goal is to grow in unity. We learn how to be married by how we relate to Jesus. This last week was, a, um, was an interesting week for me. Wednesday I showed up at, at, uh, at the office and I was there just for a couple hours. Sam was in the office. He's talking to me and um, as he's doing so, I get a, a, a uh, um, phone call coming through and it was some some family it was my uh, mom and dad's house I said well I'll call him back in a little bit 
And then um, about five seconds later, my, a, a phone call comes through, and it's my wife. And I, so I, I divert there, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll call her back in a little bit. And then I get a call from my brother, who, who never really calls, right? And I'm like, uh-oh, something's up. And, um, and so I, I call my wife, priorities, right? I call my wife, and she goes, I have to, I have to tell you something. It's not easy for me to tell you. Um, your, your dad has died. And, um, you know, so there's like the initial shock of all that, right? And so I scramble, I get out of the office as quick as I can, I drive out to Murphy where my parents live. When I get there, my dad's body is still in the, in the bed and the, the police and the paramedics, they've done all their, their thing and now we're waiting for the, the funeral home to come and collect his body. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm watching my mom, and I've got a whole range of emotions that are happening in my own, my own heart. And um, we, we wrap up his body in a, a sheet. We carry him down the stairs, and there comes that moment where they're zipping up a body bag over your dad. And I'll tell you, that transition in my heart, to, like, see that, and, and to understand that was incredibly difficult in the moment. So then I went from that. The next day I went four-wheeling with my brothers because I grew up redneck. And the way for us to like sort things out is to get alone in the woods and shoot something. So, um, <clears throat> so that's what we did. Me and my brothers, we drove deep into the woods and shot as many things as we could find. Um, I don't know how that works out in counseling, but hey, <laughs> you know, it worked for us, right? Uh, so then fast forward to Saturday. Saturday, I, I'm doing a wedding for two of the people that I love um, in this church and have built deep relationship with um, in, in some pretty profound ways. Rodney and Linda are getting married, and so I've been, we've been leading up to this moment, and yesterday I get to stand with them as they declare their love. Now, now here's the interesting thing. Here's the dynamics, right? Yesterday, a relationship begins. Wednesday, a relationship changes and ends in the same way that it was. It's different now. Hey, guys, if I, if I could encourage you in any one thing, it's this. The most important day of your marriage is not the day you say, I do. It's the day that you breathe your last. It's the day you breathe your last. We're not building temporary temples of convenience or pleasure in marriage. We are building a life together that ends with us stepping into eternity before the Lord. Don't build to the first day. Build to the last. And we do so by wives loving your husband like the church loves Jesus. And by husbands loving your wives like Jesus loves the church. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. I pray right now for your people who are hearing the scriptures. And I ask, Lord, that you would make alive those things that pertain to them specifically. 
that this would be incredibly practical and that if there are areas of repentance that need to be had, that in the car ride home and in their time together throughout the day that they might be able to repent with one another, reset and return to doing those things that they know are right. God, that you might be the supreme example for them on how to be a husband and how to be a wife, that that this would be concreted in their vision for their family. God, would you now equip your church? They've heard your word. Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, enable them to make changes that they might be aligned with your word. Grow us all together, and may the families of heritage reflect the glory of Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen. You guys are dismissed. Lord bless you. Have a wonderful week.